Hello and thank you for joining for episode number 149 of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul and in this episode we are speaking to Natalie Rothman. She is Associate Professor of History at the University of Toronto and the author of The Dragoman Renaissance, Diplomatic Interpreters and the Roots of Orientalism, published by Cornell University Press. The book traces how Istanbul-based diplomatic translator interpreters, known as Dragomans, played a key role in developing outside understanding of the Ottoman Empire, as well as in executing the Ottoman elite's diplomatic manoeuvres. It's a fascinating book and a fascinating subject, and in fact the text of the e-book is publicly available, open access, from Cornell University Press's website. If this interview piques your interest, I've put up a link to where you can download that e-book at turkeybooktalk.com, where you can also find our entire archive of episodes episodes going right back to 2015. Also remember that you can support the podcast by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Becoming a Turkey Book Talk member gets you various extras, including an exclusive discount of 30% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman History series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman History titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 30% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout, and that deal is valid for for all physical books, pre-orders and e-books. Turkey Book Talk members also receive PDF transcripts of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that we have not previously published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, just pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now let's get on with our conversation with Natalie Rothman. The book particularly focuses on Venetian dragomans in Istanbul in the 16th and 17th centuries, but the category of dragoman is wider and more comprehensive. So I started by asking Natalie Rothman to speak broadly, explaining who were the dragomans of the Ottoman Empire and what was their role. Sure, and I guess there are many different ways of thinking about who and what were dragomans. In a broad sense, you could think of them as the consummate cultural intermediaries, fixers, go-betweens, individuals who helped mediate between different political elites, sometimes between different commercial elites, helping to translate and interpret between languages, but also doing a lot of the kind of groundwork for communication, uh, whether it's in the sense of moving materials and, and texts from one context to another, or helping as interpreters in various diplomatic and other settings. In the, in the more specifically Ottoman context, dragomans are state functionaries employed either by the Ottoman court or by foreign consulates and embassies whose task is to formally translate documents that are of official nature between different languages, but also to serve as emissaries who go 
literally go between different offices and communicate and then relate the information uh, back to whoever sent them. So they actually wield quite a bit of power in the Ottoman context in that the Ottoman court uses primarily the Ottoman language as its official language of communication, even though the vast majority of Ottoman political elites are bilingual or even trilingual. And the foreign embassies with which these court officials interact, by and large, do not speak Ottoman themselves. So we have this somewhat unusual situation in Istanbul that, unlike other early modern capitals where a visiting ambassador would be expected to speak the local language or to have a language in common with local elites, in the Ottoman context, it's quite usual for, say, a British ambassador or a Venetian ambassador or a French ambassador to be practically ignorant, not just of Ottoman language, but of anything to do with Ottoman history and culture and customs. And so their dependency on these individual translators, dragomans, is that much greater as a result. And we see dragomans becoming kind of a fixture of the Ottoman capital and playing a very significant role in the life of the court and in connecting these diplomatic elites with local political cadres, but also connecting them with intellectual elites, with commercial opportunities, and the list goes on and on. So they are quite significant for the very operation of diplomacy in the Ottoman context. Fantastic. And the dragomans were obviously in this intriguing position, really, between their patrons and their Ottoman hosts. So they straddled a lot of um, familiar binary distinctions between local and foreign, or even Eastern and Western, Islamic and Christian. These very familiar binaries that sort of often frame our understanding of history. And it could be said that your book really complicates this narrative, these binaries somewhat, because obviously these dragomans, as I said, are somewhere between all these sharp oppositions. Could you just elaborate really on, on that theme? How did the dragomans complicate those binaries? Certainly, I think they bring into sharp relief how problematic these binaries are in the first place. Um, so just to take as our example the question of local versus foreigner or local versus foreign, many of the dragomans that I study in the book that worked primarily for the Venetian, Venetian consulate are either born and raised in the Ottoman capital or newly arrived emigres from the Venetian Ottoman borderlands and in fewer occasions from Venice itself. But in order to do their work properly, they have to become highly localized. And one of the ways they do this is by marrying local women. Um, so in a sense, even if they were not born in the Ottoman capital, they end up becoming deeply localized. They become very central to the operations of the local Catholic community, holding offices within that community. In many ways, they go native, quote unquote. But you could also look at it the other way in the sense that if we, in popular imaginations, think of the Ottoman state as an Islamic state, what these dragomans that, as I mentioned earlier, work not only for foreign consulates, but very often work for the Ottoman court itself. And sometimes it's the same individuals working for both. If we look at their own biographical trajectories, by definition, they were Christian, almost all of them. It was extremely rare to find a dragoman who was not Christian. And in the few occasions that we have evidence of non-Christian dragomans, they happen to be Jewish rather than Muslim. And yet they are very central to the operations of the Ottoman state, holding very powerful positions, 
playing a decisive role in determining the foreign policies of their employers, et cetera, et cetera. So in that sense, they really call into question assumptions about who gets to be defined as Ottoman, who gets to be defined as non-Ottoman, and their familial practices, the ways that they contract marriages and consume and practice publicly their understanding of their position in the Ottoman capital really suggests that in many ways they understand themselves as quintessentially not just Ottoman, but Istanbulite, very much of the place, very much belonging in a kind of elite cultural milieu that transcends these these distinctions. It's not that they cease to think of themselves as Catholic, if anything, many of them were very devout Catholic and very invested in their Catholic identity, but that for them did not pose a contradiction with being Ottoman or with being Istanbulite, with belonging in this courtly society. And related to that, could you say a word or two about the ambiguity of the Dragoman's legal status? Whose laws were they subject to? As I understand it from the book, they had certain legal immunities as subjects of their employers, even as most of them were born as Ottoman subjects. So it's obviously quite a complex situation. It is complex and it's also historically shifting in the sense that the very understanding of extraterritoriality is only emergent in the period that I'm studying in the 17th century. So the the very question of whose laws are they following is open to interpretation, open to negotiation. In some contexts, it was advantageous to become a dragoman precisely for the immunities that it seemed to offer and the tax advantages that it seemed to offer Ottoman subjects. But this was not cut and dry. And in and in many cases, we see these dragomans being incredibly adept at using different legal regimes to advance their interests, depending on the context. So we see this particularly in the question of real estate. Many of these dragomans, as I mentioned, were married to very powerful local women. And these women were very good at figuring out which legal court they should take their case to if they were negotiating a real estate contract, if they were negotiating inheritance or other matters, they might take it to the court of the consulate where their spouse or father happened to be employed, or they may, be, may take it to a Sharia court, or they may take it to another court altogether, depending on how they assessed their potential for a favorable ruling, which again shows us that their own understanding of whose laws they are following was somewhat malleable, somewhat strategic, I would say. Now, the book focuses largely on Venetian dragomans of the 16th and particularly 17th centuries. Why is that? What is it that makes them particularly interesting? There are several things that make the case of the Venetian dragomanate particularly interesting to study. Um, First and foremost, because Venice really offered the template for training dragomans and had the largest cadre of dragomans at any given point until virtually until the demise of the Venetian state in 1797. In many ways, they have a much more elaborate system of both training and assigning tasks to different ranks of dragomans that involve both kind of recruiting youth, apprenticing them, and then sending them for further training in 
some of the smaller consulates throughout the Venetian uh, maritime empire in the Adriatic and Aegean, so that by the time they returned to Istanbul, they were very well trained in chancery practices. And remember, a lot of these youth, since they're local born, their first language at home is Greek for the most part, something that may surprise some listeners, but the Catholic community of Istanbul by the 17th century is Greek-speaking. They may have Italian names, but they had to acquire Italian as much as Ottoman in order to do their work. So they were trained for a very protracted period of time. And the, and the Venetian case is also exciting, not just because of this elaborate system of training that allows us to understand the different motivations and logics of different players in the story, the dragomans themselves, their employers, their interlocutors in the Ottoman court, but also because the Venetian archives are superbly well-preserved and detailed. We have records of employment, exemplars of Dragoman's translation work and their own writings in great abundance that we don't necessarily have for other embassies and consulates. So in that case, in that sense, the Venetian case also allows us to examine these questions of what work the Dragoman's did, how they understood their, their job in a far more detailed and granular way than we might for, for some of the other foreign embassies. And finally, the, the Venetians shared a very long border with the Ottoman states, a, a landed border with many communities straddling both sides. And some of the dragomans are recruited actually precisely from this borderland regions in the Adriatic, in what today is Croatia and Slovenia. And in that sense, understanding how they position themselves, how they understand themselves to be Venetian and or Ottoman and what is at stake in making claims about their belonging in these political structures is particularly interesting. The the, the boundaries that we mentioned earlier between so-called East and West, between Islam and Christianity are a lot trickier to claim as fixed and unchanging when you come from that that kind of world. And the, the labor of asserting the boundaries is, is inherently more visible and more legible for us as historians when people have to stake these claims in, in greater detail, because it's not at all evident to people looking at them from the outside that they belong in one camp and not the other. Could you give one or two examples of dragomans from this era who particularly symbolize or reflect interestingly on these themes? Are there any particularly colorful individuals who spring to mind and who bring the subject to life, perhaps who you discovered as you conducted the research? For sure. And rather than individuals, I think it's helpful to think of clusters or familial kind of clusters within this group of dragomans. And and the ones that feature prominently in the book and I think make for a very interesting case study are the Tarsia family, because they start out as a kind of minor elite family in Capodistria, what is today Koper in Slovenia, uh, very close to Trieste, to the uh, Italian-Slovenian border. And one of their members, Cristoforo Tarsia, comes to Istanbul, I believe around 1618, as a young boy at the behest of his uncle, who's already serving in the Venetian consulate, to be trained specifically as an apprentice dragoman. He ends up marrying and establishing a true dragoman dynasty in Istanbul. His sons marry the daughters of other dragomans. His daughters marry other apprentice dragomans. And, and by the late 17th century, the Tarsias are really the, the, the most powerful, arguably the most powerful dragoman dynasty in Istanbul, really spawning dozens of dragomans in that process. 
One of the things that I found intriguing is a series of portraits of Tarsia and related dragomans and their women folk that are preserved or scattered across several museums and, and collections in what today are Croatia, Slovenia, and Italy, where these sitters fashion themselves truly as members of the Istanbulite courtly elite. They don clothes that may seem very much like the, the clothing of elite Ottoman subjects, whether Catholic or otherwise, and use paraphernalia that really marks them as dragomans, things like dictionaries and um, letters of appointment from the sultan and other, other accessories of the same nature. And to me, the intriguing question was why they would choose to represent themselves in this kind of very Ottoman garb to their families back in Istria, where, in fact, for the most part, that's not how they would dress when they were when they would visit Istria, let alone when they were going to Venice. This is very much a an Istanbulite view of what a dragoman is and how a dragoman inhabits the world. And ultimately, I think it is a way of imagining themselves very much as belonging in Istanbul and calling into question retroactive efforts by nationalist historiographies in that part of the world to claim them as kind of scions of Christian crusade battling the forces of Islam or that that kind of narrative, which may sound like a caricature, but is very much how a lot of historiography in the past has characterized dragomans as valiant representatives of Christendom in a foreign world. I don't think that the, the Tarsia dragomans understood themselves as out of place in any way in 17th century Istanbul. I think they were very proud of who they were and felt very much at home, very much felt that they kind of ran the place because in many ways they did. They were absolutely part of the elite, running parties for members of the Ottoman court, intermingling with the highest echelons of Ottoman political society, corresponding with ambassadors far and wide throughout Europe. I think in many ways they thought of themselves as very central to the Ottoman political enterprise and to this kind of imperial vision of the world, uh, even if they were serving ultimately the interests of another another power. One of the things that made the Dragomans particularly important was the simple, obvious reality that Ottoman Turkish was the dominant language of the Ottoman court. And that actually distinguished the Ottoman court from courts elsewhere in Europe, where French or presumably some other Romance language was typically used. And this perception that Ottoman Turkish was very difficult, not widely known, a kind of rarefied area of knowledge or specialism, uh, really helped burnish the Dragoman's status in many ways. Uh, Is that right? Absolutely, yes. And and in fact, dragomans contribute to this by making knowledge of Ottoman something of a kind of niche occupation, you know, not to make dragomans more powerful than they actually were, but in, in many ways, they had very little motivation to increase the knowledge of Ottoman outside their circles. And unlike other languages, if we think of Arabic or Hebrew, that are languages that One can acquire in early modern Europe fairly easily. You can live in places like Paris or Leiden and become absolutely fluent in the written registers of these languages. For Ottoman Turkish, it's extremely difficult to learn these languages anywhere but in the Ottoman Empire. And so in many ways, this becomes a 
type of linguistic knowledge that is confined to a much more restricted group of professional intermediaries. And dragomas are perhaps the most significant among that very small group of people who know Ottoman outside the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. You write at one point that, quote, with Ottoman Turkish now the dominant language of court ceremonial, but the sultan himself largely inaccessible to all but his innermost circle, dragomans came to embody Ottoman alterity. Unlike other capitals, where command of the local courtly languages would grant the resident ambassador direct access to the sovereign, lack of direct communication with the sultan made dragomans de rigueur in Ottoman diplomatic practice. Ironically, Dragoman's ubiquity may have provided a further disincentive for diplomats sent to the port to acquire fluency in Ottoman Turkish themselves. This in turn exacerbated perceptions of the language as inaccessible and of the Ottoman political system as arcane and impenetrable. And there's a lot of things wrapped up in that little passage. But it gets to this core idea, really, of the very important role of Dragoman's in actually framing the Ottoman world and interpreting it for their employers. That's right. Although one of the things that the book emphasizes is that dragomans don't invent this knowledge out of thin air. They're in many ways refracting knowledge and perspectives and ideological stances of the Ottoman court for their readership and interlocutors beyond Ottoman borders. Uh, In the passage that you read, one of the things that I'm, I'm arguing is that it's not that the Ottoman language was inevitably or inherently inaccessible, but rather that the structure of Ottoman diplomatic protocol disincentivized visiting diplomats from acquiring it. Because even if you were fluent in Ottoman Turkish, you would still not be granted audience with the sultan simply because the way the Ottoman court works, you never have an audience with the sultan. You might have an audience with the grand vizier if you're very lucky. And for most diplomats, that would only happen on very specific ceremonial occasions, not as a matter of kind of day-to-day interaction. In that sense, it's kind of the reverse argument. It's not that the language is inaccessible and therefore there is limited direct communication, but rather because there is no direct communication as a default way of doing business in the Ottoman court, that few foreign diplomats end up learning the language and end up relying much more on these dragomans, who, as I mentioned earlier, are not just interpreters in the strict sense that we think of, you know, when we have visions of the Cold War, of a, a diplomatic interpreters standing in between two parties and whispering in their ears in consecutive or simultaneous interpretation mode. What dragomans do is they are they are the emissaries. They are the ones doing a lot of the negotiation. They are the ones doing a lot of the on-the-ground kind of haggling and then going back to their employers to relate what they've been able to achieve. It's a much more powerful role with a lot more freedom to insert yourself and to exercise your own judgment, your own kind of cultural understanding of the situation. So in that sense, the book tries to kind of move away from narrow understandings of language as a barrier or the Ottomans as inherently foreign and distant from their European peers, and rather to follow in now a very sizable body of historiography that insists on the Ottomans being understood as part of the, the European the European system and understanding the, the particularities of the Ottoman case in light of the very significant role the dragomans play both as Ottoman state employees and as foreign diplomats. And the uniqueness of the Ottoman diplomatic protocol is something that enables this role and and allows dragomans to play this kind of outsized role in, in that context. 
And Dragoman's obviously played a key role in knowledge production about the Ottoman Empire. And in that sense, as you describe in the book, they were hugely influential. The Dragoman's role in laying down the foundation for actually the academic discipline of Ottoman studies, essentially. Could you just talk a bit about that, about the Dragoman's role in basically institutionalizing Ottoman studies and indeed Turkology? Certainly, with with a caveat that part of the challenge is precisely that a lot of the historiography on the emergence of Ottoman studies and Turkology has emphasized the academic study. And Dragomans were always a bit of an outlier in this in this context. They were never quite of the academic system until very late in in in, in France and in Austria, as particular cases. In many other contexts, they played a role that I in the book make the analogy with what in North America at least is known as alt academy. Those individuals who are in more precarious conditions of employment, whether on, on contract or as tutors or in various other more privatized settings, they often served as secretaries, as amanuenses, as people who do auxiliary work that allows the scholars to engage with Ottoman learning, but don't get the glory of their name appearing on the work. That said, in various institutional contexts, uh, dragomans do play a very important role, and that's specifically the two foremost institutions where one can learn the Ottoman language in Europe by the late 17th and early 18th century, and that's the Parisian Collège Louis-le-Grand and the Viennese uh, Orientalische Académie. Both of these are established specifically as institutions that are meant to train diplomats in general and dragomans in particular, and where dragomans or their children end up assuming very significant roles as teachers, as professors, as directors of study. Those, again, are the, the, the genealogies of the profession that kind of exceed the temporal boundaries of the book because the book kind of ends in the early 18th century. And that's exactly when these institutions take off and become more, more robust, more permanent fixtures of kind of the diplomatic European scene. But I do think that there is a really strong connection between the know-how and the perspectives that dragomans bring from the years of service in Istanbul, their understanding of what it means to learn the Ottoman language as a courtly language, and this courtly aspect of the language is fundamental, that it's not just about memorizing grammar or, or um, vocabulary or understanding syntactical structures, but that it is really about learning specific genres of interaction, specific genres of communication, whether written or oral, and understanding how Ottoman operates in the Ottoman context as a language of the court. What I mean by that is that Ottoman is a synthetic language. It's a language that incorporates a Turkish substratum with a lot of Persian and Arabic, not just lexemes, but entire phrases and modalities. And in fact, to be an, a learned elite member of the Ottoman court, one has to be able to pepper one's Ottoman with a lot of Arabic and Persian, the more the better. In that sense, to become a fluent speaker of the Ottoman language, one has to kind of embody courtly ideals of, of poetic expression and become fully fluent in Arabic, Persian, and Ottoman, and to be able to incorporate Arabic and Persian into one's Ottoman on top of that. 
These are all skills that are extremely difficult to learn simply in a classroom. They're immersive in nature. They are very much dependent on social context and on being able to emulate the very kind of bodily habitus of courtiers, of how you hold yourself in the world, how you speak, how you learn to address your seniors and your peers, how you learn to say things differently in different social situations. And for that, you really have to live in, in a courtly context, such as Istanbul. In that sense, the Venetian experiment of training dragomans in situ in the diplomatic and courtly milieu of Istanbul becomes incredibly influential, even in these efforts later on in Paris and Vienna to develop an alternative model that takes these young people out of the Ottoman court and tries to artificially recreate that world elsewhere. It's only partially successful in, in Paris and Vienna and in both contexts, in both Vienna and Paris, these experiments are only partially successful in that the finishing part of the training has to be in Istanbul. The educators in both these settings understand that ultimately one cannot become a dragoman simply by memorizing grammatical textbooks in Paris and Vienna. All these young people end up being sent to Istanbul to finish their education there. But the important lesson the dragomans bring to this is precisely the vital importance of immersive context, which if we think about it, is a kind of a pedagogy of immersive language learning that is very unique in the early modern educational landscape. It recalls some earlier experimentation with Latin in very particular situations, but by and large, there are very few opportunities for young people to do that other than to travel to the locations where the language is spoken. And in that sense, the, the experimentation with Ottoman immersion as part of the training of dragomans does become a model for later understandings of how how to teach a second language, a very powerful model, I would argue. And your book focuses on, as we say, the 16th and 17th century. Just to conclude, I wonder if you could talk about how the dragoman's role changed in subsequent centuries. Is it the case that there was a kind of golden age in terms of their influence and status? Did their role dwindle over time, essentially? It's an interesting question, and of course, it's very hard to disentangle their role from the broader kind of history of the Ottoman Empire. And as much as we no longer use the language of demise or decline, there is no denying that the very central role that the Ottoman state plays in interstate politics in the 17th century as one of the most powerful states on the European scene it's not quite the same by the time we get to the late 18th and 19th centuries where diplomacy in Istanbul may carry some weight for the fate of the Ottoman Empire, but it's no longer the kind of the, the crucial player in the broader interstate dynamics of the European scene. In that sense, to be a foreign ambassador in Istanbul in the 17th century is, a, is a, I would argue, a much bigger deal than it is in later centuries. And, and alongside that, being a dragoman in Istanbul in the 17th century, I, I think, was, was a bigger deal. Uh, these were really some of the kingmakers of the era. These, these were diplomats that played an enormously influential role in determining the fate of entire swaths of territory. Let's recall that at that point, the, the Ottoman Empire spans not 
not only three quarters of the Mediterranean basin, but also much of Arabia and, and, and extends almost to the Indian Ocean and controls very large parts of, of Central Europe as well. In the context of the 17th century, dragomans were indeed very, very powerful because they were operating in a very powerful political and diplomatic context. In later centuries, and particularly with the growth of various kinds of nationalist sentiments in the late 18th century, dragomans, who for a variety of reasons that I go into in the book, also get pulled in very different directions because of family, how their families hedge their beds and send various sons and marry off various sons and daughters to, to families outside the Istanbulite courtly context. These dragomans end up sometimes leaving Istanbul and moving moving to other parts or moving to other kinds of trades. And by the 19th century, I would say that the role is no longer as prominent. But again, I would I would be reluctant to say that it's something that in, that is intrinsic to the role of dragomans. I think it has more to do with the kind of the the interstate politics of the era and how Istanbul is is positioned differently in the mid 19th century than it is in the mid-17th century. That was Natalie Rothman. Many thanks to her for joining for episode number 149. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you could support it by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 30% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury. Transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. Episode. For all that, just pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. Also do rate or review Turkey Book Talk on whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via our website turkeybooktalk.com or via Twitter or via our Facebook page or all of them. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any recommendations, feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.